During the height of the Cold War, there were many drills, routines, film strips, and pamphlets designed to help citizens survive a nuclear attack. What were some of these things, and who designed them? President Harry Truman created the Federal Civil Defense Administration in 1950 in an effort to help the nation prepare for the possibility of a nuclear attack. The FCDA did many things throughout the 1950s and 1960s to help people maintain a level of awareness. There were many efforts undertaken, largely focusing on schools and educating children about proper procedures. Home economics classes taught girls what items should be included in a fallout shelter. Comic books were even created and distributed to schoolchildren that promoted nuclear safety. Probably the most famous effort to educate children came through the use of Bert the Turtle. Bert was an animated turtle who appeared in film strips promoting the duck and cover safety strategy. Bert instructed that in the event of a nuclear attack, first one was supposed to duck out of the way to protect from flying debris and then cover your head and body to prevent burns and serious cuts. The films were accompanied by a catchy song that many could still sing as adults years later. Schools took other measures as well. Many districts began practicing weekly air raid drills that utilized a similar duck-and-cover method. When the students heard the warning siren, they were instructed to hide under their desks to protect their heads from falling objects. Other school districts took even more extreme measures. Some went as far as purchasing identification bracelets for all of their students. This was to make it easier to identify victims in case of a major attack. These precautions, and many others, serve as a reminder of just how frightening it might have been to have lived during the Cold War era. Welcome to the show. Pull up a chair. Let's have a chat about nuclear. Seems like the world's going crazy over nuclear, right? Uh-huh. First, um, I'm going to be talking today about why do I think 100%, no room for doubt, my mind is made up. <laughs> nuclear was a stage event, and Japan was a photo shoot. They wanted to propaganda propagandize the idea into our brains. That's why they threw those bombs into Japan <clears throat> and also to um, create a way to have a photo shoot. So that, then they would have these staged things so they could always remind us that, oh, look what happened with J- Japan. Look at all these things about about when things blow up and nuclear explosions happen. So, so what follows in this show will be the data. And I'd like to share what data I've come up with because I don't want to just log on and say, well, got it solved, nuclear is fake. 
I want to lead you through why I came up to It's Fake. And the, keep in mind, people, you know, pick and choose what shows they tune in on and what, whatever. But the deal is this, is that I don't sit around making up titles to draw your attention. I'm not trying to gain the social media. So there's a lot buried in these files that you may be missing if you're going, you know, hopping from file to file. So that does seem to create a bit of confusion with people, like, well, why don't you get this more organized, and why'd you say that twice? Well, because it's a process, okay? I may have 10, 20 files open and think, well, I better probably get this recorded because it's a lot of data, right? I'm just explaining, not complaining, there's a difference. So anyhow, so, you know, so a lot, lot goes on, and I'm recording each segment at different times and all that, so a lot of things will change in between. Did I say that in the show before? No. If I can't remember if I did or not, I'd rather say it again than just to forget to say it. <laughs> so anyway, so it's a process. And of course, Archie, you know, he works in the radio business, you know, that's all I'm going to say about it. So yeah, his instinct is to want to clean up the, you know, clean up my dog barking and clean up, you know, the noise and that kind of stuff. And I've had to let him, him and I have talked about this, that no, those things aren't going to get cleaned up for simple reasons. I'm moving forward with data and trying to open up files, record the data. I'm trying to record as much as I can while I still can. And so, you know, I record the files. And so, yeah, a lot of things might get repeated in another file. And then I use the intro and the closing as a way to catch things that I may have forgotten about or may not have been in a file that I opened because, um, why did I start looking at nuclear? Well, because it's all the big thing, right? And in my mind, I knew it wasn't real, um, but I wanted to, before I said anything about it, I wanted to take a look at it. So anyway, so it's, it's, I found it <laughs> quite interesting. Um, and there is a difference. I didn't talk about it because I didn't know when I started off looking at nuclear. I really didn't know the difference between a nuclear bomb, an atom bomb, and these different terms and stuff. So I'll be walking you through in this show some of the different terms and things that... Here's my overview. You'll hear me use the word TNT. I believe a lot of what this nuclear thing is, is a combination of explosives, okay? And if you've been listening to me for a while, um, these people are very skilled at using explosives and fire. So there's... Well, anyway, you have to listen to what I go through the different things, okay? And one thing that I did, at the end of the show, in the closing, what I'll talk about there is this monkeypox business. Monkeypox may be going to be huge, and monkeypox, talk about a racial slur. But anyway, so yeah, tune in at the end, I'll, I'll talk about that. So anyway, so in this show, I talk about the difference between nuclear bombs, um, atom bombs, and all the things about these, this bomb and nuclear business, okay? One thing I think I left off, but if I did or didn't, it's not important, I'll tell you again. <laughs> we have nuclear power plants, okay? Those are the ones that, in my show about um, this crisis of environmental stuff, um, I didn't cover nuclear power plants, or if I did, it was just in general because along with the word nuclear, we would have heard of nuclear power plants. Well, nuclear power plants operate in 32 countries and generate about a tenth of the world's electricity. Kind of a big deal, right? Most are in Europe, North America, East Asia, and South Asia. The United States is the largest producer of nuclear power 
while France has the largest share of electricity generated by nuclear power at about 75%. China has the fastest growing nuclear power program with 16 new reactors under construction. This was like in this year time frame. Followed by India, which now has eight under construction. Some countries operated nuclear reactors in the past but have no but have no operating nuclear plants. So they've operated nuclear reactors, but no plants. Among them, Italy closed all of its nuclear stations by 1990, and nuclear power has since been discontinued because of the 1987 referendums. Kazakhstan is planning to reintroduce nuclear power in the future. Valarius began operating one unit of its first nuclear power plant in June of 2021 and expects to bring the second unit into power in 2022. Spain and Switzerland are currently operating nuclear power plants <clears throat> while planning nuclear power phase-outs. All this is being phased out. Germany will complete the shutdown of its nuclear fleet in 2022 and any restart has been ruled out of ruled out on technical grounds. Taiwan is considering a phase-out. Austria and the Philippines never started to use their first nuclear plants that were completely built. Sweden and Belgium originally had phase-out policies, however. They have now moved away from their original plans. The Philippines launched their nuclear program on February 28, 2022, and we're right now in August of 22. The Philippines announced it and may soon operate the, they call it the, uh, they mothballed the project, the Bataan, B-A-T-A-N plant. Due to financial, political, and technical reasons, Cuba, Libya, and Poland never completed the construction of their first nuclear plants. And Australia, Azibon, Georgia, Ghana, Ireland, Kuwait, Oman, Peru, and Singapore never built their planned first nuclear plants. Some of these countries are still planning to introduce nuclear power. As of 2020, Poland is in advanced planning phase for 1.5 GW and plans to have up to 9 GWs by 2024. Hong Kong has no nuclear power plants within its boundary, but imports 80% of the electricity generated by the Daya Bay nuclear plant station located across the border in which the power company of the territory holds stake. Government has also proposed to increase the share of nuclear energy to 50%. In 2021, Iraq declared it plans to build eight nuclear reactors by 2030 to supply up to 25% electric power in the grid that suffers from shortages. Well, the whole idea, right, close all these things down. Um, so yeah, so that's different than um, other nuclear things that I'll be talking about in this show. You know, the idea is to get electricity as expensive as possible. Just my wild guess here, okay? <laughs> um, you know, knocking out the gas, the fossil fuels, and now this. So go listen to my show about the economic terrorism part of this whole deal. So yeah. It makes sense that they've been chipping away at the nuclear power because that provides us with electricity, right? Just like those dams are now going dry out at Lake Mead, not going to go all the way in there. But, you know, they just announced, they just announced, oh, I don't know, the last couple of days, that 
they're down to like enough water for, for 50 days. 50 days, right? And they're, they're planning, planning, okay? And it looks like the federal government will be taking over the water, which will become a real nightmare. But anyway, no time to go there today, kids. So anyway, so enjoy the show. What's been repeated in the show? I don't know. I don't remember. I think I've got it all covered. Um, I threw in a curveball with Nancy Pelosi and um, Natalie Wood. I never have anything really fun to talk about, but I ran across somebody talking about Nancy Wood. Natalie Wood playing the role of Nancy Pelosi. And just for fun, we have a little puzzle game going on today, which you'll find over the website. And I think I do talk about that later in one of the other two segments. So anyway, so that's just for fun. And um, I will continue on with um, what all this nuclear stuff means, because it appears to me that it's explosive with some other things mixed in. And they have a very long track record with fire and explosives. But the whole idea is for everybody to thinky-thinky for themselves. It looks to me like I pinpointed where exactly they pinpoint where exactly this whole nuclear thing got started. Because remember, to pull off a good scheme, you got to make everybody think that you're big and powerful and all this other stuff, right? So. I, I pinpointed exactly when they came up with the photos for this nuclear trauma, and it's quite a deal. So anyways, we'll continue on here. So thanks for joining me, and here we go. is on fire. The country is being decimated before the eyes of the world. The impact on civilians is reaching terrifying proportions. Countless innocent people, including women and children, have been killed. And with each passing hour, two things are increasingly clear. First, it kept getting worse. Second, Whatever the outcome, this war will have no winners, only losers. Further escalation of the war, whether by accident or design, threatens all of humanity. Raising the alert of Russian nuclear forces is a bone-chilling development. The prospect of nuclear conflict, once unthinkable, is now back within the realm of possibility. The security and safety of nuclear facilities must also be preserved. It's time to stop the horror unleashed on the people of Ukraine and get on the path of diplomacy and peace. share with you some um, known data allegedly, right? Um, every country in the world that has nuclear weapons and how many they have, okay? Russia has 6,255 nuclear warheads. United States of America, 
5,550 nuclear warheads. China, 350 nuclear warheads. France, 290 nuclear warheads. United Kingdom, 225 nuclear warheads. Pakistan, 165 nuclear warheads. India, 156 nuclear warheads. Israel, 90 nuclear warheads. North Korea, none, but material to build 40 to 50 nuclear warheads exists. Okay. Nuclear bomb basics. Any discussion about what countries possess nuclear weapons should start by outlining what nuclear weapons are. As most basic, a nuclear weapon is the most powerful form of explosive, explosion, explosive, keep hearing that word, explosive, what was San Francisco earthquake about? Well, explosives, okay? Um, so, it's, so it's the most powerful form of explosive known to man. Now, some of these things, kids, you don't really have to be a scientist to figure it out. You just have to look, right? A single nuke carries the power of 100,000 or more tons of TNT. <laughs> what is TNT? Explosives. Um, and could kill more than half a million people if detonated in a densely populated area. Well, yes, of course, because they would have gotten this experience from the horrible, tragic event that they set off in um, Japan, those bombs, and also all of the bombs they were detonating out of the um, <coughs> deal with, um, you know, what, what was going on at, at Laurel Canyon. Um, they were doing all those photos out there. So, um, why are some countries allowed to have nuclear weapons while others are not? The Russia-UK crisis has the world on edge as countries with nuclear bombs like Russia threaten to unleash their destruction. But who are the so-called nuclear powers? Nuclear weapons are considered the most destructive weapons in the world, and just one explosion having the ability to level an entire city. Nukes, as nuclear weapons are known, are far more damaging than even the biggest, far more damaging than even the biggest normal non-nuclear bombs because their explosions rain so much terror on the local population and for so many decades thereafter. Because their explosions rain so much terror on the local population. Okay, that is interesting, right? How long have they been running terror? Oh, I don't know, ever since, what, 1951 when they were teaching kids to hide under desks? Um, there has been a lot of talk about how some countries, specifically nuclear powers like the U.S., are allowed to have them while others cannot. Oh, yeah, that's a very interesting question to me, too. So, um, what are nuclear weapons? They are extremely powerful explosives. To trigger a nuclear blast, atoms and isotopes are involved. I had to look at the level that I was able to put into my own brain because, you know, you hear all these things about nuclear threats, nuclear weapons, atom bombs, you know, how did Japan look like that, you know, what were those bombs, so yeah. Uh, so, there's really just atoms and isotopes, okay? 
The bombs get their energy from either splitting atoms or joining the tiny particles inside the atoms together, which is also why a nuclear bomb is sometimes called an atomic bomb. Okay? So, so nuclear bombs and atomic bombs, and our, our, our brains, kids, as we're absorbing all this information, when you read nuclear, you can pretty much think atomic too, okay? So, um, and what's interesting is this, because these people are well into this radiation business, okay? Why do you think we all have smart boxes? Thinky, thinky, is a, a way to disseminate it. So anyway, so nuclear weapons release massive amounts of radiation. Okay, then all the news about nuclear, oh. and on, it was an ongoing threat since 1951. Um, so yeah, so um, before, and this part just gets to be too complicated, but what I always have to do to absorb information is come up with some sort of a timeline, okay? So I'm, I'm not gonna go into over massive details about the beginning part because there is tons and tons and tons of data, and so very easy to find. Um, so this timeline I put together, I started with the first known dates that seemed to kind of cook up this whole idea of this nuclear bomb idea, right? So because it certainly appears to me that Japan was staged to be the place for them to get the photos that they would use at Outlook Mountain there on, in Laurel Canyon to then be able to use this nuclear threat since 1951 to current day, right? This is just common sense thinking here, right? So, okay, so, so that's why I'm starting with 1931 era because before Pearl Harbor, the Japanese had already begun imperial expansion in Manchuria in 1931. So Japan was moving into Manchuria, Inner Mongolia, and Japan, in China in 1937. There was, you know, this big thing about they were all moving around at that period. The Emperor of Japan entered World War II on 22nd of September 1940 when it invaded French Indonesia and made its entrance into the war official five days later with the signaling of the tripartite pact with Germany in Italy on 27 September 1940. Though it wasn't until the attack on Pearl Harbor on 7 December 1941 that the U.S. entered the conflict. So that was how the game was staged, okay? So uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor allegedly by the Japanese was of course staged to trigger the U.S. to get the people, the citizens of the United States to agree with going to war in Europe quite a simple little trick there, right? So anyway, so um, I already talked about all this, about Japan and Pearl Harbor and then how that photo session was all staged. Um, I mean, let's face it, Pearl Harbor, they just happened to have their Hollywood guy there <laughs> capturing the photos, so yeah. Um, already covered that part. So yeah, so that, that brings us to 1941 when the U.S. entered the conflict. Um, I'm leading up to the um, bombing and the nuclear stuff and what triggered it all. So, the Second Japanese War, 19, excuse me, the Second Sino-Japanese War, 1937 to 1945, 
was a military conflict that was primarily waged between the Republic of China and the Empire of Japan. Okay. The war made up the Chinese theater, theater, right? The war made up the Chinese theater of the wider Pacific theater of the Second World War. And the beginning of the war is conveniently dated to the Marco Polo Bridge incident on 7th of July, 1937, when a dispute between Japanese and Chinese troops in Peking, which later became Beijing, escalated a full-scale invasion. This full-scale war between Chinese and the Empire of Japan is often regarded as the beginning of World War II in Asia. So what you're looking for is the Second Sino-Japanese War that started in 1937 and 1945, okay? Um, China fought Japan with aid from the Soviet Union. Oh, bad Soviets. So that China fought Japan with aid from the Soviet Union and the United States. Hmm. After the Japanese attacks on the Malaya and Pearl Harbor in 1941, the war emerged with other conflicts which are generally categorized under those conflicts of World War II as a major sector known as the China-Burma-India theater. Are we looking more Shakespearean as we go along here, right? Um, some scholars consider the European War and the Pacific War to be entirely separate, albeit concurrent wars. Other scholars consider the start of the full-scale Second Sino-Japanese War in 1937 to have been the beginning of World War II. So some are saying that 1937 was when <coughs> World War II actually started. So. Um, you can bury your head in some of this data. What this leads up to is, I guess, that it made it okay if Japan, um, you know, if, if Japan allegedly bombed or attacked for a harbor, then um, it probably made it look like a victory. They could spin it as a victory to say, oh, look, we got the Japanese, we tossed these bombs in their direction. See how it could all just have this evil master plot to this whole magic trick, right? So, you know, so this whole thing makes it seem like it's okay in people's minds that, uh, well, Japanese got bombed during World War II, but, you know, they kind of deserved it, right? Because they're the ones who bombed uh, Pearl Harbor. See how, see how the best crime is one that you can get somebody else. So that's what you're always look, looking for when you're looking at how psychopaths operate is the sheer ability to create these scenarios to deflect from what the real goal is here, right? So, yeah, so <clears throat> um, Allied forces conducted many air raids on Japan during World War II, causing extensive destruction to the country's cities and killing between 214,000 and 900,000 people. During the first years of the Pacific War, these attacks were limited to the Doolittle Raid in April of 1942 and small-scale raids on military positions in the Curly <coughs> Islands mid-1941. So, was 43, excuse me. Huh. What's interesting here is, does this really sound like 
knowing now that Japan and, and China are the two biggest supporters of the U.S., <laughs> you know, would you really, um, after being treated this way, your people getting bombed and, you know, so-called all these bombs and horrible things happen, would you be then lending that country money? It really points to my point that they're all in this together, right? So, um, the U.S. military air campaign waged against Japan began in earnest in mid-1944 and intensified during the war's last months. While plans for attacks on Japan had been prepared prior to the Pacific War, these could not begin until, well, I don't know, they were waiting for some, some bombers to get before they were ready for combat in 1944. Well, this stuff could go on literally forever, so let me just scan through real quick. They had all these campaigns, and, um, oh, this is right, <clears throat> the point here, I kind of buried the lead. <laughs> um, some of these files can get kind of big before I realize it. Um, okay, how did we get a nuclear bomb, okay? Well, this is just fascinating. Okay, so, there were, wait one second here, um, there were three, of course, three physicists who made the nuclear bomb possible, and they worked in Berlin during Nazi rule. So, yeah, three physicists worked in Berlin during Nazi rule, okay? In, in 19... Why do all roads keep leading back to Germany? So, in 1938, Otto Hahn, Leis Mitzner and Fritz Strassmann discovered nuclear fission, the splitting of atoms into two or more smaller atoms, which paved the way for the nuclear bomb. But who really invented the bomb, okay? And this was an interesting person. A person, and I keep hearing this name Oppenheimer, okay? Probably some relationship, because there's this website called... Um, <laughs> called a uh, Jew or not, and, uh, you know, some of these places can get a little bizarre. Fair warning if you go there. It's called Jew or not, or Jew or not Jew. You can find it very easily. So, uh, if you question anybody, they have they have an interesting take. I'm not saying I agree or really support it all, but, yeah, so I did look up this Oppenheimer person, but let me first get to uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer earned himself the title Father of the Atomic Bomb after leading the Manhattan Project. And that's a key word to look for, Manhattan Project. He's the guy who headed it up. This was all about the nuclear bomb business, okay? It was a program that developed the first nuclear weapons during World War II. Very important thing, okay? And I looked up J. Robert Oppenheimer on the um, Jew or not Jew website, and um, so um, they go on, and uh, you can read it for yourself. He was born um, April 22nd, 1904. This is J. Oppenheimer guy, and died February the 18th, 1967, so yeah, he was really right in the middle of it all, so yeah, their verdict, they always, they always outline what their, what their views are and stuff, which you can go read for yourself, but, um, their verdict, um, is 
Jew. So obviously he didn't pass, he passed the Jew thing on that site. So anyway, so J. Robert Oppenheimer was an American theoretical physicist, a professor of physics at the University of California, Berkeley. Oppenheimer was the wartime head of the Los Alamos Laboratory, which is often credited as, and he is often credited as the father of the atomic bomb for his role in the Manhattan Project in World War II that was an undertaking that developed the first nuclear weapon. So there's just so much information if you just look up those couple of things. <laughs> I mean, just so much information. I'm just trying to give you somewhat of a reasonable recap to hopefully incite you to go look further. Um, so um, the Manhattan Project undertaking that developed the Oppenheim, Oppenheimer was among those who observed the Triton Trinity, T-R-I-N-I-T-Y, test in New Mexico, where the first atomic bomb was successfully detonated on July the 16th, 1945, okay? So, yeah, New Mexico has been a site of a lot of these tests, and boy, information is really out there, so I really would encourage you to take a look. So, um, he later remarked that the explosions, the explosions, right? that the explosion brought to mind words from the Bhagat Gavita used in the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Okay, so, this guy, J. Robert Oppenheimer, the godfather of the bombs, said, he later remarked that the explosion brought to mind words from the Bhagat Gavita Bhagata Vita, that's a, the Indian thing, B-H-A-G-A-V-A-D, and the next word is G-I-T-A, Bhagata Vita, Gita, <laughs> the quote was, now I become death, the destroyer of worlds. And then in August of 1945, the weapons were used in the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. After the war ended, Oppenheimer became chairman of the Influential General Advisory Committee of the newly created United States Atomic Energy Commission. He used that position to lobby for international control of nuclear power to avert nuclear proliferation and a nuclear, uh, let me see here, and a nuclear arms race. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah, and he opposed the development. It's funny how the guy who set this stuff up just said, oh, whoops. He opposed the development of the hydrogen bomb during the 1949-1950 government debate on the question and subsequently took stances on defense-related issues that provoked the ire of some factions in the U.S. government and military. Well, that's how controlled opposition works, right, kids? <laughs> During the Second Red Scare, those stances, together with past associate, associations Oppenheimer had with people and organizations affiliated with the Communist Party, <clears throat> led him to suffering the revocation of his security clearance in a much-written about hearing in 1954. Yeah, that, that was a big, big hearing. So what you're looking for, there was a big red scare against communism. Um, and the whole communism thing got set up um, 
in Germany, which is right prior to Tavistock, but <laughs> let me try to continue on here. So, um, so yeah, so <clears throat> he, Oppenheimer supposedly does this nuclear bomb, right? And then the nuclear bomb um, gets set for us in Japan, and then the tide gets turned on Oppenheimer, and they're saying, hey, you were affiliated with the Communist Party, so we got to grab that thing back. Effectively stripped of his political influence, he continued to lecture, write, and work in physics. Nine years later, President John F. Kennedy awarded, and Lyndon B. Johnson presented him with the Enrico Fermi Award as a gesture of political rehabilitation. Oppenheimer's achievements in physics included the Born-Oppenheimer approximation for molecular wave functions, working on the theory of electrons and positions, and first prediction of quantum tunneling. Now, what that means, I don't understand, but anyway, so <laughs> you can use those words that they're very easy to find. Um, what this really is, and this is my view, and go back and look at the show about photos and, um, you know, I go through all the photos and stuff and how they've been doling out technology as they go along. So, you know, this is, <clears throat> Oppenheimer is a person they're putting as a name in the face um, about this technology, right? Because he's remembered as a founding father of the American School of Theoretical Physics that gained world promise in 1930s. So this is when <clears throat> a key point that we're looking at here is the 1930s. After World War II, he became director of the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. Um, the American uh, he was director of the laboratory in Los Alamos, New Mexico. Boy, you could find out you could just spend a ton of time looking at um, nuclear projects in New Mexico. Um, that alone would be a huge rabbit hole. Um, so what, what was the at? Manhattan Project? You find Manhattan Project is the word you're looking for. And this was headed up by Oppenheimer. Code, it was code name for the American-led effort, effort to develop an atomic bomb. So after Oppenheimer figured this out, then they headed up this Manhattan Project. Work towards this project began in 1939 due to fears that scientists in Nazi Germany had, let me see, this is about cause and effect, so let me read you why I'm saying that. Work towards the project began in 1939, that would be the Manhattan Project, okay, and it was due to, due to fears that scientists in Nazi Germany had been developing a nuclear weapon and that Adolf Hitler was prepared to use it. So see, 1939, they were able to say, oh, let's start on this project, this Manhattan project, um, because uh, we're afraid that uh, Adolf Hitler, who really is them, right, is going to set this whole deal up. So yeah, 1942. Facilities were set up in remote areas of New Mexico, Tennessee, and Washington alongside sites in Canada for research and testing, 1942. So 1942. Now then, miraculously enough, right, this is why I, always, I have to always pull together what these people look like and a timeline. So 1942, they have these facilities being set up for testing this stuff, right? Well. 
I guess they needed some real life testing because um, this is at least a connection how I see it, okay? Because 1942 and nuclear weapons have only been used once in history. Well, that was the two attacks in Japan during World War II when the U.S. bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August of 1945 after they were doing this testing in 1942. Interesting how that all happened, right? Um, almost like it was to build a propaganda machine and, oh, I don't know, footage for fear campaigns and newsreels and stuff. So, but along the way, they killed upwards of 126,000 people. Um, they say the full extent of all the full extent of all-out nuclear war is unknown, but believed to be wide-reaching and catastrophic. Of course they have to say that, right? Well, I mean, frankly, you know, are we splitting hairs? They're saying they, they, they have these nuclear weapons. Well, they do have a lot of things and bombs, okay? They have clearly bombs and uh, explosives and fires are kind of their deal, right? So... Um, if you're just looking for stored nuclear warheads, I would say look further at, um, oh, I don't know, things that could be stored to make things like, oh, I don't TNT, just the basic ingredients. Um, because they say it's only been used. Oh, here's what I found interesting that I passed in here. Um, what they call the um, bombs and stuff, okay. Um, on July the 3rd, 1945, the atomic bomb, which was called Little Boy, was dropped on Hiroshima by the Boeing B-29 Super Fortress Enola Gay, causing a blast yielding of 15 ton, kilotons of TNT. Okay, now this is interesting. The bomb is called Little Boy, and it was dropped on Hiroshima, and the plane was a Boeing B-29 Super Fortress Enola, Enola Gay, causing a blast yield of, and I thought, what is going on? Why would this thing be called Enola Gay? Well, it's an interesting story. So, um, so anyways, but what I got interesting was this atomic bomb was called Little Boy. Little Boy, okay. And it's a blast of 15 kilotons of TNT. Why do we keep getting back to explosives here, right? Uh, why was it called the Enola Gay? It was named after Enola Gay Tibbets, the mother of the pilot, Colonel Paul Tibbets. On 6th of August, 1945, piloted by Tibbets and Robert A. Lewis during the final stages of World War II, it became the first aircraft to drop an atomic bomb in warfare. So this bomb that dropped, the plane that dropped the bomb, was named after the mother of the pilot, Enola Gay Tibbets. <laughs> so, I don't know why, but I love these details. So anyway, so carrying on here. So, uh, so then, well, I looked a little bit more. So, so. What happened to the B-29 Super Fortress Enola Gay? Um, Japan officially surrendered on September the 2nd, 1945. The B-29 Super Fortress Enola Gay backed over a pit to be loaded with the first atomic bomb. Oh, anyway, 
September it was surrendered and uh, then uh, the Enola Gay remained in service for several years before being given to the Smithsonian Institute on July the 3rd, 1949, okay? Um, and the second atomic bomb that was dropped on Japan was called Fat Man. Remember, the first one was Little Boy, and this one was called Fat Man. It had a length of 128 inches, 3.3 meters, and was dropped in Nagasaki with a higher destructive force than Little Boy, which was 21 kilotons. So Fat, Boy, fat Man and Little Boy. Um, so yeah, um, so what's this all about? And, I, I won't even get into how I ended up back on Laurel Canyon, okay, but, but I did a show about MK7 and Laurel Canyon, and what was going on in Laurel Canyon was, uh, well, a lot of things. I mean, all the rock stars were living there. It was basically a CIA spot, okay, um, and when I was looking at uh, Nancy Pelosi, Possibly being uh, Natalie Wood, that hopefully I'll cover in some kind of intro or something here, and if not, well. Um, anyway, I was looking at Natalie Wood and Nancy Pelosi, and I noticed that Natalie Wood spent some time living with her parents in, in California on uh, Laurel Canyon. Well, of course, that immediately drew my attention because I had done that show about MK7 and the LSD deal in Laurel Canyon, those words are all in the name of the video, which you can find over on YouTube. You won't find it on audio, just on YouTube. So Laurel Canyon is a very significant time because Laurel Canyon was when they were cooking up the MK7 stuff, giving out free LSD to all those kids and stuff. So, um, so anyway, part of Laurel Canyon was this place called Lookout, Lookout Mountain, okay? What was Lookout Mountain? Well. I covered it in the show, but it was one of those things that, you know what I mean, I, I covered it, but it really had, some things had registered in my brain, <clears throat> so, you know, with more information, we can look a little bit harder, so, <laughs> for whatever reason, I wandered back over there, because <clears throat> really, research is about going where it seems to, where I should go, right, so, I wander like over there, because, look at Mountain, um, it's a complex, and um, <clears throat> it just has this incredible history. And so let me give you a little recap in case you haven't seen this or whatever. Because there were things about Lookout Mountain that, Mountain that I hadn't connected as, as deeply <laughs> or as problematically as I have now, right, too. This, to me, actually confirms uh, the <clears throat> thing in Japan was definitely staged. A lot of people were sadly murdered, and they were doing it to get these photos. So anyway, so all the pictures we're going to be seeing are happen at this very important pivot time. A hundred percent of my work has been about, first of all, tracking down how this stuff gets started, right? Because to just start wildly speculating halfway through the game doesn't really work very well. So this exactly is how it worked, okay? Remember 1940, we're still in World War, this is, this is around the World War II era. Let's, let's just leave it at that, okay? Because some of these dates could be a little bit squishy one way or the other. Because, for example, we may only be thinking that Look, Lookout Mountain started on this date, but it could have started way before that. It, that was just the date that it got announced, right? They don't just set up a building one day and get it announced. So, 
Okay, so what was I looking at here? Just a lot. Um, it turned into this interesting, interesting thing. So, Lookout Mountain, it's on a, a place called Wonderland Avenue. It's in the Hollywood Hills, okay? And it's a compound that was built in the early 1940s, okay? And remember, do the math, we got the bombing in Japan coming up here, right? So, so this is developed in the, was built in the early 40s, you know, that we know of, of course. Um, the complex was once known, it's still there to this day, as Lookout Mountain. And between 1947 and 1969, some of Hollywood's most talented scriptwriters, producers, editors, and directors made furtive journeys to this place to work on top secret projects filming nuclear explosions. What a surprise, right? So yeah, remember all of these uh, military movies, all of the gunning down of people, all of the war action films and stuff? Well, this is, this is the development of all this stuff, right? But what's significant is the main goal, because when I first looked at this, you know, I kind of put it all in a basket, like, oh yeah, they were there doing military films and this nuclear stuff, and kind of just blew past me. So when I was looking again at nuclear, and this thing fell on my path, I thought, oh, okay, now this is very interesting because, you know, one of the main goals was filming nuclear explosions, right? Filming and then capturing this to then use as propaganda, as in exactly what they've been using since, I'll get to that point. So, um, it was a full service facility, military and civilian filmmakers would head to test sites in the Nevada desert or Pacific Islands, capture footage of exploding bombs, and bring it back to Laurel Canyon for editing and post-production. So this is where this is this is where this entire propaganda machine about nuclear got cooked up here, in Laurel Canyon. Um, and you really need to go see that show about Laurel Canyon MK7 because all of the rock stars that just happened to live there. And also, you know, why did Natalie Wood happen to spend some time on Laurel Canyon? <laughs> so, I don't know. I, if I left some of the details out, I'm sorry. There's just a lot to cover here. So anyway, so another key feature I found about this Laurel Canyon thing and the um, Lookout Mountain deal, because um, movies, you know, they've actually become... They've uh, they've had this apoplectic theme has been on the rise, right? So you know it's really not hard, and I don't, I don't watch full disclosure. I don't watch any of the current movies. Film to has always been more of my thing, which is actually good because I've learned so much about it. But anyway, so back to the subject at hand: the movies that they sell, all these movies like Terminator, Dark Knight Rises. Indiana. So some of these things they use um, special effects for showing nuclear stuff, right? Um, and you see a lot of in uh, scanning around. I saw a lot of TV shows and movies and stuff just tend to use this kind of stuff. Well, where did a lot of that stuff come from? Well, likely from this point here, right? <laughs> so, um, which would you know put into our heads all this nuclear threat, all these movies about a nuclear bomb is going to hit us any second. This is how you disarm your enemy. You create yourself to be this big, hulking, <laughs> huge thing, when in reality, this is an illusionary magic trick, okay? 
post is 100% a full stop <clears throat> illusion and magic going on here. Um, so, yeah, so that was Lookout Mountain. And here's some other parts that I made that really uh, draw this together here. Let me scroll down here. So we're at Lookout Mountain cooking up this stuff and doing these photo shoots and stuff, right? Um, somewhere in here, um, I have the uh, more dates. Okay, this, this is where it gets interesting. So they're cooking up Lookout Mountain in 1947. And that was in order to promote, produce movies and photographs of nuclear tests, okay? So anyways, um, what, what happens next, okay? By the early 1950s, schools across the United States were training students to dive under their desks and cover their heads. Now, really, I don't remember, I was born in 1951, I don't remember if I was told as a child to dive under my desk because I wouldn't be in the school system until probably, oh, I don't know, 57 or 58, so possibly, and I spent some time on military bases, so yeah, possibly, but I really honestly can't remember. Um, and that's the best kind of fear they can plant in your brain. You really can't recall exactly where that fear article came from. Just, I really don't know. Um, and that created the, uh, see, first of all, the logic of, if, if they knew by those photos in 1945, the devastation, uh, the logic of having kids dive under their desks and cover their heads is, is just kind of lost, right? Uh, that's now the now infamous, I think we're going to play a clip about that, the now infamous duck and cover drills simulated what should, should be done in case of atomic attacks and channeled a growing panic over an escalating arms race. So at that key point in time, my generation, which became the baby boomer generation, you know, people hopping off orphan trains, people already leading fairly unstable lives to begin with, became a channeled, a growing panic over an escalating arms race. Interesting stuff, right? Okay, the chain reaction process. So yeah, so, oh, in the 1950s also, they have a lot of footage um, you can find easily where they, um, they set up fake towns uh, and they use those for supposedly nuclear tests. Well, go take a look for yourselves. Fake towns used in 1950s nuclear tests, they look like bombs and explosives to me. And why do I keep reading TNT and <laughs> explosives? Okay. See, here's where they start splitting hairs. This one piece said, the atomic bomb and the nuclear bomb aren't the same things. They vary in the amount of energy needed for the nuclear reaction and are released in the following explosion. So to me, okay, just for simple, simple people's purposes here, <laughs> to me, they are in fact the same, okay? Uh, you can think what you want. <laughs> it goes on to say, nuclear or hydrogen bombs cause a larger explosion than atomic bombs and the shock waves. So nuclear or hydrogen bombs cause a larger explosion than atomic bombs and the shock waves. Blast the heat and radiation have a greater range as well. So they blast more heat and radiation have a greater range, okay? Um... The initial design, uh, oh, this is a good one, okay. So here we're working down the date. So we started up here at the war where they're uh, bombing Japan 
We moved to the military place at the Mount Lookout Mountain. So what happened next? There was a major explosion. They did the Pacific Ocean, 1952. Um, and then they had the bombs. These things, um, they have so many different bombs and stuff. These things were used to um, really show photos and stuff, okay? Uh, uh, I looked up what was the biggest one, and the Tsar, T-S-A-R, Bomba, B-O-M-B-A, was a hydrogen bomb conceived by the Soviet Union responsible for the biggest human-made blast to date. It was activated in 1961 as a military power demonstration in a Russian archipelago, that means a group of islands, located in the Barrett Sea, and its explosion was approximately 58 megatons of TNT. Atomic bombs and nuclear bombs, of course, are devastating. Since nuclear bombs generate explosions, they are at least a thousand times greater in power than an atomic bomb. So, I don't know, being a simple person here, it looks to me like nuclear bombs are just more powerful, right, than the atomic bombs with more explosives. Uh, now, I may just be looking at this too simply, but... Um, they, but they aren't used as a weapon in combat, but as a military method of nuclear deterrence and MAD, which is which is M-A-D, which is Mutual Assurance Destruction. Um, I don't know. A nuclear bomb is stronger than an atomic bomb. The world supply of nuclear weapons is huge. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know where that goes. I don't know where that goes. But, okay, here's the deal. Um, how I wandered there is so windy, but what what we're doing is over at the website psychopathinyourlife.com under the tab show notes you'll find all these all these pictures about Nancy Pelosi okay um, because you know the world is a scene and I was going to include this part in the um, files that I'm working on now about Shakespeare but I wanted to do the nuclear bomb thing because. It will give you a good lead into what's going on with Shakespeare, and the Shakespeare thing is, is just a lot of work that I have to do on it. So anyway, so um, um, but we'll go ahead and post the Nancy and um, Natalie Wood stuff over the website. Okay, full disclosure, because what happened was this, was that I was looking into things, and I don't know. I was wandering around, and somebody said that Nancy Pelosi is being played by Natalie Wood. Okay, so I looked into it, and there was only like a one-minute clip somewhere, and that was all I could find. So anyhow, roll forward. So I, I was curious later, and I had some time, so I put together a file on Natalie Wood and Nancy Pelosi. So what I'm going to be sharing with you are the photos. Now, are they the same person? Well, I don't know. Likely. I mean, you know, all things are possible, right? This is a stage. It is an act. <laughs> and it's interesting. And, um, you know, I don't generally um, deal in speculation if I don't have any way or haven't seen anybody confirm anything. So I did look around, and nobody has done any kind of research into is Nancy Pelosi really Natalie Wood. So I was curious. So I pulled together a whole lot of photos and... You know, there's a lot of similarities. I mean, Natalie Wood, you know, got that fake death that happened with her in that boat was around 1981. Nancy Pelosi became, 
you know, visibly engaged in politics mid 1980s. So there's just a lot of connections, same height, you know, same, you know. <laughs> so, um, I'm not going to either confirm or deny it, but it looks pretty obvious to me. I mean, you know, but I have other things posted over there because, for example, there's this man online that he has documented. Um, he has documented. You have to. You have to go from his early shows because he just kind of rolls along. And a link to his thing will be over at the website too because. Um, what he does to really identify the roles they're playing, he actually takes you back to the early Hollywood studio days of when this actually got started. And it's fascinating stuff because there's, you know, there's, um, sometimes I feel like i got to stop using the word crazy. And maybe, maybe I should start saying, well, this is really insane, but believe me, it, it, it's all documented there. And he, he done it. It's, his name is Mitchell E. Brooks. Mitchell E. Brooks. That's all you have to enter into the old uh, YouTube thing. And, uh, so yeah, but you really need to start at his uh, very beginning because he just rolls along. So people who watch shows and stuff based on headlines are making a kind of a, uh, losing a lot of information, that's all I'm going to say. Because for example, people watch certain of my shows more than other ones. Well, each show, remember, if you really think about it, how am I going to organize into what? Ten words or so <laughs> went on this rambling, plus all the data and stuff is involved. I'm sharing my research, so it's, it's a rolling event. So yeah, so um, so this is really just for fun, okay? Because I'm always talking about things that are serious. So after I pulled together all this data on Nancy <laughs> and Natalie, <laughs> I thought, well, you know, maybe we should just have a fun segment here, and um, I'll share with you. What I know about or found about Na Natalie and Nancy, okay? I, I would say, and remember, I'm not saying 100%. I didn't do the ear analysis because I'll also put links over there because um, there's clips at the website about how they discovered the how John F. Kennedy is played by Jimmy Carter because of the ear analysis and all that kind of stuff. So keep in mind. What I'm sharing with you about Nancy and Hollywood is just for fun, because I went looking because I was curious when somebody said, "Hey, Nancy Pelosi is being played by Hollywood," and I couldn't find anything. So curiosity led me to put together a file and a whole bunch of photos. <laughs> so I'm sharing those with you over at the website because uh, just draw your own conclusions. Hey, if anybody wants to take it any further, then please do because. You know, you can look at all the genealogy of all this kind of stuff, and uh, you know, you can hunt down the pictures. Go, go, go! Learn what uh, Mitchell Brooks is doing as far as what he shows, as far as how you look at the ears and all that kind of stuff. He could teach you. So then, if you're really curious, then go hunt down some pictures of Natalie Wood and Nancy Pelosi, and uh, yeah. And if you don't believe me about Nancy Pelosi being really a um, MTF, which is a male to female, <clears throat> um, when I was cruising through the photos, I found a really uh, good one of Nancy's face. Um, they get the uh, the huge male pores, okay? If you put Nancy Pelosi's face next to my face, you see a massive difference in pore size because there, there's some things, well, many things, actually. It's <laughs> not the time to go there now, but many things they haven't quite got straight. And if you see a woman with really huge pores, well, something, some, there's a lot of testosterone hiding there somewhere, whether it's by a tent, by birth, or whatever. 
it's not how, uh, well, I hate to say normal, but well, let's, let's put it this way. It's not how, what normal female skin. We don't really need, and the funny thing is, is I remember they used, to, they used to sell all this stuff about this pore cream, um, cream to make your pores smaller. <laughs> They're selling all this stuff for themselves, right? So always keep that in mind. So yeah, so remember, all the photos are over there. There's, I, I dug up quite a few of them and their histories, and um, it, it, it just, uh, it's just, it's not like all really organized and stuff because I'm just unloading the file that I had, and there's quite a few pages, so um, you can scroll through and see for yourself. But yeah, if I were to wager a guess, I'd say yeah. But remember, I'm just wagering a guess. So if you if you want to go and really verify it for us <laughs> and help us out here, then. By all means, go and do the um, ear analysis and learn from Mitchell Brooks about how to do all this stuff. So, yeah, I'd say it makes pretty for an interesting thing because here's the thing. I always wondered, and I'm going to come into some uh, catty comments here, okay? I mean, have you ever seen Nancy Pelosi speak? <laughs> these people are put in these positions because it's an inheritance thing, okay? And, uh, you know... You know, the, the, the hormones and all that stuff has, has a lot of different impacts and, you know, the way we're on the hands and nervous motions. Anyway, so, um, yeah, um, so I've always, and this was before I realized that she was really a, a transgender and all this other kind of stuff. I always kind of used to laugh to myself and wonder, how does somebody get the job with a title of speaker and they can barely like pull together a sentence without a, uh, anyway so and, and I know taking that context it could appear cruel but so I always wondered how did somebody get the title of speaker well now we know because it's an inherited title right these are puppets okay absolute puppets so yeah so it's just interesting so I found it funny because Natalie Wood wasn't necessarily the, a, you know a huge actress but she was a studio creation as a child, right? And why did Natalie Wood spend time on uh, Laurel Canyon, which got me going with this entire deal? <laughs> it proves my point that part of the point here that clearly Natalie Wood was a CIA somehow because she was certainly in the area with all the other agents, you know, all the all the fake rock stars that they created in the 60s you know, to convince us all to become hippies and drop out culture um, and destroy our families. It's all about the destruction of families. So, yeah, it all it all connects. All, all the pieces are there. So, yeah, so it just proves another point that, yeah, it makes it even more apparent that, yeah, possibly, because why would Natalie Wood be spending time in the CIA operative part of this whole deal right, with, her, with her parents? Um, so yeah, so it all kind of intersects. It was kind of interesting, uh, but yeah, somebody would need to do a lot more analysis. But I, I would certainly give it as something worth worth highly considering if you have to s time on your hands and stuff to take this to the next step because it's interesting. It's interesting. So take a look over there. So anyway, so that's it for this. There's a place I long to be where the air is wild and free. It's a little haven just for me I can let my hair down and be me Just a smile for a start And it only takes a spark To begin the fire in your heart Wouldn't you agree? Hello listener, this is Hachi I hope you are enjoying the show We would like you to consider supporting us So as to keep giving you interesting contents 
Take a time out to check out the support page on the website. And please consider making a kind donation. We would appreciate any little support. Thank you. Okay, let's take a look at some data here. And I'm talking about nuclear and who can and can't have it. <laughs> some other details. So, the destructive weapons can cause radiation sickness, so their impact among the populace lasts for decades after the blast. Well, why do you think they installed smart boxes in all of our homes in this country, folks? This is eugenics in action. Load up that radiation. Um, they've been at this for a long, long time, kids. Don't overlook the facts. But this particular use of radiation called nuclear has only been used twice in history okay and it was the two bombings in, against Japan that I may have talked about it in the other segment or whatever but anyways during World War II they were used against Japan causing catastrophic devastation and enormous loss of life well I have to tell you here's my conclusion okay because I don't want to you know go on and on and then at the Here's what I think happened. I think that Japan was indeed set up as a, um, well, I mean, as an open target, and it was used as literally a photo session. And the photo session would then be able to be used now to show us, oh, look, this is what the impact of nuclear war is all about. Look what happened to Japan. Look here, look here. So, yeah. This is how I 100% see this, okay? So, this also because my work is about how these things get started and how, how much I can trace back and, you know, what this type of personality being psychopaths is really able to do on a mass level is, you know, quite, quite something else. So anyway, so let me carry on here. So yeah, and you also have to take a step back and look at the overall relationship with Japan and the United States. I mean, I don't know, logically, would you still be um, Japan and China are the two biggest lenders to this country, to the United States? <laughs> Would you still be loaning the, the money after they had bombed the heck out of your country and unfortunately caused mass mayhem and can't even drag into all of that? But information is out there, very easy to find. Look up Japan. The horror show is real, kids. So anyway, so yeah, so, um, so nuclear, which is the big threat, has supposedly only been used twice, and that was the two bombings in Japan. So um, that would be a Hiroshima, Japan, killing an estimated 80,000 people with radiation from the blast lasting for months. And the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki, Japan, caused similar destruction with more than 70,000 people killed. The weapons have not been detonated in war since then. So that is, when they talk about nuclear attacks, this is the only known nuclear attack that we're talking about here, okay? And then there's all this thing you hear about, well, so-and-so, we can't trust them with nuclear weapons. So what's all that about? So I looked that up. I'll give you a recap here. Who can develop nuclear weapons? Well, who are the big dogs in this show, right? If you're looking at... Instead of just focusing on the Rothschilds, take a look at these names and countries and things that pop up at the top here. <clears throat> these would be who, if I wanted to identify specifically 
who the top one percent are, well, these cast of characters would certainly come to mind, okay? So, uh, who could develop nuclear weapons? In theory, pretty much anyone with the technology, intelligence, and facilities could develop nuclear weapons. But the question of whether co countries are allowed to or not is a whole other issue. In an effort to prevent the spread of nuclear weapons and promote disarmament, an agreement called the Treaty of the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, also called NPT, was drafted, coming into effect on January the 1st, 1967. That was the non the treaty the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, okay, NPT. So who are the countries with nuclear weapons? Well, <laughs> okay. Even though 191 company, countries have joined the NPT, five nuclear weapon states, China, France, Russia, the UK, and the United States, are allowed to have the weapons because they built and tested a nuclear explosive device before the treaty came into effect. Okay, China, France, Russia, UK, and the United States. Hmm, let's do the math there. So, under the agreement, the nuclear weapon states have to reduce how many they have and cannot keep and cannot keep them forever. But a number of countries have ignored the rules or simply skirted around them. Well, imagine who that could be. <laughs> three, <clears throat> three countries: Israel, <laughs> India, and Pakistan never joined the NPT and North Korea left the treaty in 2003. So I'm sure in one of these charts there must be something about how many they actually have in India, Israel, and Pakistan, interesting enough, who have never seemed to have joined this treaty. So, um, And then this person was talking about where does Ukraine fit in, so I grabbed just part of that because this, this, some of these things could go on and ranting and raving for a long time. So <clears throat> this is the theory, okay? Because remember, they had to develop this thing to put it put in this illusionary act, right? That they have these tremendous capabilities. So there's a lot of um, well, go look. There, you know, just look nuclear war, and um, you know, came from my generation of telling us to hide under desks to today, because it, it it is without a doubt. Okay, credit where due. Okay, it is without a doubt their very best best slate of hand because if you look at the longevity of how this thing has worked so um and what how did it get started well it got started by you know unfortunately some actions that were horrific to some people in japan so yeah so okay so this is what they're saying about um these cold war and uh, who's got the nuclear stuff well i don't know <clears throat> I think just by logic, um, nuclear looks like the threat of nuclear looks like dynamite and explosives and fire, which they're very good at. So uh, I, I would have to argue that who has how much would be a pretty serious question, right? <laughs> so between them all. So anyhow, you know, whatever these facts are, we really don't know specifically what they are, or even how complicated this would be for them to keep have or whatever, right? So they could be keeping raw materials of certain things. But remember, it all started as an illusion, so I've never thought since the very beginning that it was even real. So it, it, it seems to be proving to me that it is still an illusion, right? 
they cooked it up with this photo shoot in, in you know, Japan, where a lot of horror happened to people. That got it into our public, you know, I've been able to show how they, you know, put it into the movie studios. And so, yeah, um, got all the early footage from this thing. So this really, you have to step back and look at it like it was one big marketing act, right? And unfortunately, a lot of people in Japan got hit pretty hard and suffered a great deal. So in all seriousness, it's, it's a, it, it speaks of their, the level of, um, the level of evil that, that, that's going into this whole thing, right? You know, this whole final stage act or whatever this whole euthanasia deal is about. So, yeah, um, so don't kid yourself. They know all this technology because they've been using it for a long time. Um, and it's not always exactly how we think it is. We just need to think in very simple terms, okay? So anyway, so this is what their argument is about Ukraine. And I'm just going to read from this piece, not saying that I agree or disagree with it, okay? They're saying that after the Cold War, Ukraine was the largest, was the third largest nuclear power in the world. The Soviet Union's collapse accumulated in 1991, resulting in Ukraine's inheriting roughly 5,000 nuclear weapons that the Russians had stationed on its soil. You know, who knows? This whole thing... They, nuclear weapons appear to be a, a mixture of combustion, right? That's how they get those smoke clouds and all that stuff. So who knows? This stuff could really be, this, this thing could be about what's stored there. I don't know. I'm not discounting or tossing in and out anything that doesn't appear to be true. So um, just something for us to consider, right? They say that underground silos on Ukrainian military bases held long-range missiles that carried up to 10 thermonuclear warheads, each far stronger than the bomb that leveled Hiroshima, that, that leveled Hiroshima, Japan. Only Russia and the United States have more nuclear weapons. Yes, that's true. Um, the removal, <coughs> excuse me, the removal of Ukraine's arsenal is often hailed as a triumph of arms control, with diplomats and peace activists casting the country as a model citizen in a world of would-be nuclear powers, or just another um, another Shakespearean stage act, right? <laughs> this is only, this is stage, uh, we're going to conduct this one on stage four, and we'll bring in that little uh, tranny uh, leader of Ukraine, and we'll stage this one over here, and we'll call it Ukraine. Yeah. Um, why do you think they call uh, military, uh, when, when they talk about these events, they call them military theater? Just something to think about, okay? So, um, so they look at this as a thing. And, uh, history shows the Ukrainian denuclearization to have been a chaotic upheaval shaken with infighting, reversals, and discord among the country's government and military. So that was what I'm talking about here. Um, 1991. 1991, this is going on during the collapse of the Soviet Union, okay? Big fighting going on in Ukraine. Funny, we're back there again now, right? Okay. Um, even then, American experts question the wisdom of atomic disarmament because the deadly weapons, some argued, were the only reliable means of deterring Russian aggression. Okay. Um, today, Ukraine has no easy path if it wanted to produce or acquire the materials to build a nuclear bomb. We gave away the capability for nothing, says Andrei Zakharakis, 
a former defense minister of Ukraine, in an interview with the New York Times. Now, every time someone offers us to sign a strip of paper, the response is, thank you very much. We already had one of those some time ago, said Zakanakas, referring to the security assurances Ukraine won in exchange for its nuclear arms. So, yeah, they got some assurance in Ukraine to give up their nuclear arms. Okay, so... This was according to um, the National Nations Institute for Disarmament Research in Geneva. Why well, funny how all these things seem to happen in Switzerland, right? Um, so, Na Nations Institute for Disarmament Research in Geneva said in an interview with NPR, "It is unclear what a special mode of combat duty is actually is, but one possibility is that an order is." is that the order activated the nation's nuclear system. Normally in peacetime and command time, a control system is configured in a way that makes the transmission of an actual command very much impossible. I don't know what any of this says. It's like you could press a button. Um, oh, it's like you could press the button, but then nothing happens because the button is not connected to anything. Well, I... I this guy was saying it about something else because, you know, but to me, this is why he was really saying it, right? So just remember, this is, I pulled this statement out because it seemed like, well, what have they used all this time? Well, they've used a button in Washington, D.C. that could trigger a moment um, to put us on high alert, high anxiety for all these years. Um, they could use this button to trigger this nuclear alert. So, yeah, that's why that's there. So, anyways, um, uh, a lot of people, oh, using nuclear weapons as a last resort, Russia says, okay. Uh, a lot of people have questioned, I always like how they quote these things, a lot of people have questioned, what does that really mean? I don't know, but anyway, so a lot of people have questioned whether the bar for Russian nuclear use is as high as its official statement says, says Olga Olikar who worked at the International Crisis Group in an interview with NPR. In 2018, the Pentagon's nuclear posture review warned that Russia might use a battlefield nuke to de-escalate a conflict on terms favorable to Russia, meaning it might detonate a smaller weapon to get its opponents to back off. Now, well, that sounds like a pretty vicious threat, but what does that all mean? I don't know. Um, that statement was somewhat controversial among arms control experts at the time, but Olliker believes such action would only possibly happen in a direct war with NATO forces. Oh, enter NATO, okay. So now we got NATO. I thought maybe NATO is the ultimate control of this stuff. Oh. In the current conflict with Ukraine, I think, and this isn't me thinking, I'm just reading what they're saying, in the current conflict with Ukraine, I think it's very unlikely that Moscow is just going to lob a nuclear weapon at something, says Oliker. Obviously, it's been a week. It's been a week when a lot of people's assumptions have been challenged, but I'll cling to this one for a while. Then they go on to say, will we ever see a nuke-free world? Well, see, this has been a very effective argument in control, right? Um, the number of nuclear weapons in the world is actually decreasing. 
thanks to NPT. There are 14,000 nuclear weapons today versus 70,000 in 1986. So 14,000 versus 70,000. Some countries, the Russia, the UK, and the US have been reducing their stockpiles, but others, China, India, North Korea, and Pakistan, I don't, didn't I read earlier that China, and India, they're not even part of this deal anymore. They, they're not part of the whole little gang that's running this thing. So, have done the opposite, of, have done the opposite, and are believed to be producing more, according to the Federation of American Scientists. So look up the Federation of American Scientists if you're want, looking for more interesting facts about all this nuclear stuff, okay? And the NPT, those are key words. It's just pop into that Google machine and feast to your eyes content because there are a million, I'm talking a million, maybe a trillion theories about all this stuff. So, um, in July of 2017, it looked as though the world was a step closer to becoming nuclear weapon free when more than 100 countries endorsed a UN treaty to ban them altogether. But two countries with nuclear weapons Surprise, surprise, such as Russia and the USA boycotted the treaty. So it's back to 2017, which we're right now in 2022, okay? Just a few years ago. Uh, France and the UK have said the agreement didn't take into account the realities of international security, arguing that nuclear deterrence had been important to keeping the world relatively peaceful for more than 70 years in Europe via NATO. So NATO is the guard dog against all this nuclear stuff, it sounds to me, but I don't know. Um, when country, while countries such as the UK and the US are reducing their nuclear stockpile, experts say they are still modernizing and upgrading their existing armory. For instance, the UK is upgrading its nuclear weapons system and the U.S. may spend more than one trillion by the by the 2040s upgrading its nuclear capabilities, and North Korea continues to test and develop its nuclear program. So, kind of interesting that U.K. is upgrading the nuclear weapon system, and U.S. is planning on spending more than 101 trillion. See, you know, these things, like all of these efforts, become um, oh, ways to like deposit money in some other region, right? For example, um, they now know that a lot of this aid, because I've been talking about disaster capitalism, I'll just add this here to this segment. Aid that goes out of this, for example, aid that may get allocated, let's say, and I'm just going to use really rough numbers because it, it, it's easy information to find and verify. Aid for example, going to let's say a country like Pakistan, if if a hundred billion or whatever gets sent out an aid, well, only about two or three or maybe four percent of that actually gets turned into aid. So wow, where's the rest of it go? You ask. Well, because we're actually right in the middle of an active crime scene. Okay, so funds that get allocated for all these things, like upgrading all this nuclear stuff, right? Um, that goes into, let's say, the air, okay, you know, wherever it travels to the top, which would like, which would land for sure at City of London, okay, so this is how it gets funneled out in massive amounts, because everybody is worried about nuclear, so how easy is it for them to pass things to get trillions of dollars to upgrade nuclear facilities, so 
Yeah, you know, behind all these scams always relies on a great deal of money, a lot of magic, and a lot of trickery. So there you go. to say goodbye and close up these files. Um, thank you very much for joining me. I just wanted to do this nuclear thing before I get to the Shakespeare thing because I truly am going with Shakespeare next because that is a really interesting connection all this. So anyway, so yeah, um, I don't listen to the segments until Archie puts it all together, so I really don't know what's going to come out of my mouth because, you know, all these years that I've been sharing my research online, I've been doing it basically in one take, but I don't like to re-record things and stuff, but those one takes are done from a highly edited script, which we're not looking at now because we're just trying to move along, so... Um, because I was laughing last show, I made a big deal in the intro as far as pull up a chair and have a bunch of snacks. Well, then this show was about Soylent Green, talking about snacking on humans. So, what am I looking at besides the Shakespeare connection? Well, one thing that's going to be very interesting, or could potentially be very interesting, is this monkeypox business. Monkeypox, a disease that has been cooked up that comes out of Africa, supposedly. So, sadly, people there to get those photos. Um, those peop some people have been getting injections with things to get those horrible lesions. Well, what does mon monkeypox mean? Well, interestingly enough, uh, part of the thing might be this. Um, there's all that activity going on in Africa right now, right? All those every every country is in Africa licking their chops over all those natural resources. Well, now I am simply speculating at this point, okay? What better way to get rid of a bunch of people in Africa that are going to be in their way of extracting all these natural resources, right? We're talking about eugenics here, right? So, well, if they gave the country monkeypox and could then convince everybody to, to take these smallpox or the monkeypox vaccines, what would be the fallout rate from that? Well, probably pretty good, right? So, um, how would they do that? Well, Africa pretty much wasn't on the... Um, list of countries to get the vaccines. So how could they sell this deal? Well, it's too involved to go into right now, but just in general, here's what I'm thinking, just in general. Um, let's say, you know, it's becoming, you know, pretty documented that lots of issues with these vaccines. So, I mean, there's issues with all vaccines, okay? This whole deal is to get people to focus on this one vaccine and act like all the rest of them are really okay. So yeah, so how would they sell this in, in Africa? Well, based on their track record with this vaccine, it would probably be difficult, right? Well, hold on to your hats, probably not that hard because they can say that because of the smallpox vaccine that they eradicated smallpox so they could also eradicate monkeypox. So the scenario could go like this. The people in Africa could say, hey, no way, we don't want your vaccines. We've seen what the COVID vaccines have done. Keep them out of Africa. And a very easy response to that could be, well, Africa, we bad. 
we didn't cover you on the first vaccines, but you really kind of, it was good, Africa. We really, you know, we, we, we could have gotten you the vaccines, but we didn't, but we're here to apologize and make it right this time. We see you've got all this monkeypox. We want to help you. We have all of these monkeypox, and well, they have big stores of smallpox vaccines. Why do they have smallpox vaccine stores? Well, <laughs> because they could then whip them out and say, oh, we've got plenty of smallpox vaccines. <clears throat> so then they can't say, well, hey, um, the smallpox vaccine is good because, look, we eradicated smallpox. So see how this could become a real sales vehicle? So, you know, they could convince a whole nation of people to take the smallpox vaccine based on fake data for eradicating smallpox. See how this thing could become quite circular. So, yeah, and also here's the main point about monkeypox. You know how all these things are coded. They're, they're big on these coding and the magic and all this stuff. Part of the deal with magic is putting spells on things, okay? Do I think they put spells on things? Yeah, without a doubt they do, okay? And are the spells that effective? I don't really know. But remember, pretty much every baby in this entire country passes through their hands upon birth, right? They get taken to a back room, and I've talked about this before, where they receive injections and things like that. Well, who knows what is exactly in those injections, right? So it would be quite easy to trigger another monkeypox or another smallpox or something like that, just based on simple logistics. That's all it takes. What's the deal with monkeypox? Well, if you were in the black community, I would have to say that if I walked up and called you a monkey or the N-word, you would probably be equally offended by both, monkey and the N-word. Not good terms in the black community, right? There's this term called porch monkeys that they use to put down black people. Because really, the, the, the racist in this picture are the 1% in charge of this thing, right? So, monkey, a total racist slur toward blacks, okay? And what does pox mean? Pox could either mean those lesions or it can mean spell or a hex or a trick. So just think about monkey pox and where are they going with this? I don't really know yet, but I'm just going to tell you I'll be looking at more into it. But monkey pox could be very big and a very targeted way to take out a pretty good percentage of the population in Africa. Introduce this thing to them. So anyway, so... That's enough for right now. Goodbye for now. Be safe out there, kids. So there's been a nuclear attack. Don't ask me how or why. Just know that the big one has hit. Has New York City gone too far with this public service announcement? There are three important steps that I want you to remember. The city's Office of Emergency Management released this ad, telling residents what to do in the event of a nuclear attack. The host tells people to take cover indoors immediately. If you're outside when the strike occurs, residents are advised to shower and bag their clothes. Then pay attention to local media for information and next steps. Dum, dum, little dum, dum. Many are comparing the PSA to a 1951 film put out by the Civil Defense, using a fictional turtle to tell kids how to respond to a nuclear incident back then. Now, you and I don't have shells to crawl into like Bert the Turtle, so we have to cover up in our own way. First, you duck, and then you cover. But the comparisons aren't flattering. Many are calling both PSAs unhelpful. While there are no imminent threats against the city, Mayor Eric Adams says New York remains a top target for terrorism. 
He says the ad wasn't meant to be alarmist, but rather to help residents prepare in the event of this worst case scenario. You've got this. City officials say it is important for New Yorkers to know how to stay safe, even though the event of a nuclear weapon incident happening in the city is low. My name is Achi. I'm from Nigeria. I am the producer of the show. We would like to take this time out to thank you for your continued listenership and support towards this show. However, this past couple of months, it's been increasingly difficult to produce this show. We would like to solicit for your support so as to keep this show running. Please consider any kind donation you can make, big or small. We would appreciate anything that you offer. The donation link can be found on the website. Thank you.